So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say hi to everyone in Auditorium B. Want to say hello also to many of you watching, listening online, whether you're serving today or connect groups. We keep finding about all these different people that are meeting with us. We found out this week, isn't this amazing? There's a whole pack of university students at Ryerson that meet every week following along with us. Let's say hi to all those guys today, which is great. Just want to say hi to all of you. Uh, down at Ryerson, uh, whenever you're meeting. Well, welcome to week six in our major series uh, out of the year, of our year based on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to Matthew chapter five, and that's where we'll be today. Now, as we've been learning, the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom of God looks like in your ordinary everyday life. It's what the kingdom of God looks like over the table when you're having dinner. It's what the kingdom of God looks like in the middle of a business meeting. It's what the kingdom of God looks like in the boring, mundane, everyday. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after, this is critical, after you've accepted Jesus as Savior and King. And as I've been speaking, and others have too, of spiritual gifts as we've been learning is the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom of God grow among us and expand. And if spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation, as we walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is what the kingdom of God will look like every day. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics, it's the lifestyle of those who already are part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been with us over the last five weeks, you have begun to notice, as I have, that there's an ever-growing presence, an ever-growing reality that Jesus just keeps getting closer and closer and closer to our situations. We as a church have committed to follow the biblical mandate of asking for God's kingdom out of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What? On earth? What? As it is in heaven. And so we are saying, oh God, bring the reign and rule of God in my life more than you ever have. In my family, in my connect group, in this church, in this region. Oh God, nothing less than the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes as the head of the kingdom and says, oh, thank you for praying these prayers. I would love to bring this among you. Are you sure you want it? Jesus says in the first week when we started, blessed are, blessed are you. And then in week two, he changed the language from blessed are. He started saying, you are. You are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth. And as you've been following this with me, then the next thing, he starts getting closer, more authority. He moves from general to specific. Then he says, I tell you. Jesus, once again, is coming to this church in this moment, in this season, in this history. And he is looking all of us individually and corporately in the eye and saying, my son, my daughter, this is what I am calling you to be. So far in the last few weeks, Jesus has got unbelievably, uncomfortably close. He dealt with murder and anger and adultery 
Now Jesus comes even closer and says, See, four, I want to talk to you about divorce. This is what it reads like in Matthew 5, 31. Jesus said, It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, That anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. Now let's be honest this morning. All of us have been touched by divorce. All of us here, all of you in Auditorium B, everyone online. Either we've been through a divorce, we've instigated a divorce... We're children of divorce. We all have friends or family that are separated or have gone through this painful reality. Now, I understand this morning as I am sitting here or standing here that when I even mention the word divorce, all sorts of thoughts and emotions and ideas are literally in the ether across this room. This is like picking at a scab, uh, betrayal, fear, anger, relief, Pain, unforgiveness, lost dreams. And then when you add God and church, the tension just gets ratcheted up more and more and more. (laughs) I preached on this this message. I preached this passage in 2009. And I said this then and I want to say it again. Some of you are going, are you joking me? Like this is my first time at church ever or I haven't been in church since I was three. And this is the topic I get this morning? Really? Others of you who are in such pain right now are thinking about how to be Canadian to quietly get up and get out quickly. So I want everyone just to stop this morning and just take a look at me. Do not fear. God is good. God is love. And God is going to, at this moment, in his sovereignty, he's going to speak hope over this congregation. He's going to speak gracefully over this congregation but he's also going to speak truth to this congregation. And all of us need to realize that God is a good father and he speaks out of goodness when he addresses these difficult things. And so today we're going to walk through what Jesus says about divorce. We're going to ask and deal with some questions we might all have. We're even going to talk about how to support people post-divorce and ask, is there really even any hope? Now, some of you this morning are going to find unbelievable freedom as you walk outside of these doors in an hour and a half. Others of you are going to be convicted. God is going to come close and lovingly say, I'm sorry, but actually you're wrong. All of us are going to be given clarity this morning. And I want to remind us this morning, since this church is committed to the kingdom of God, I want to say this again out of humility as a brother among you. Jesus is not just Savior in this church. He is Lord. We need the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in this part of our thinking and living too. Jesus is Lord. That is, we have willingly said that he is master and we are slave because we know he leads us better. And so he is the master over our sexuality. He is the master and owner of every marriage represented in this church. He's also the master over your singleness if you're single or single again. And he is the master of all of our relationships. So let's just take a moment, everyone put your phones down for a moment or your Bibles, and let's pray. You on Auditorium B, you can do the same online, bros at Ryerson, everyone. And let's just ask the Lord to speak. Lord, you see every barrier in this room and all the other rooms to what's about to be said. You see pain, 
history, misunderstanding, bad theology, unforgiveness, fear through the roof. And Lord, my request of you this morning, because you love your church and you love your kids, is that in this moment, evil would not be able to twist anything I say in Jesus' name. And that our sin and our history and our pain and the sin of others would not be stronger than what you say to us today. And I would ask, Lord, that this would be the beginning of healing for many in this church. That this would lead to redemption, not condemnation. And we all said, in Jesus' name, what? Amen. Okay. So divorce. Let's start with some background. Marriage is amazing and marriage is hard. Anyone want to say amen to that? We have confidence and yet it's difficult. We have conflicting needs. We have desires. We need patience, mutual sacrifice, discipline, fidelity. Marriage is an amazing gift. It's a fragile gift. And here's the truth. Divorce is commonplace. It's so commonplace today we don't really even think about it. The statistical truth is between one in three and one in two two marriages will somehow end up in singleness or divorce, or sorry, separation or divorce. Uh, That grows, by the way, if you keep getting remarried. The second marriage, the divorce rate can go up to 60%. If you get married a third time, it goes up to 75%. And one of the things we just need to acknowledge this morning is why is there such an unparalleled divorce experience compared to all of human history? Well, there's probably six or seven reasons, and here's the first one. We're living longer. In 1850 in America, you lived basically 40 years or less. We're living much longer, and it adds all sorts of new questions and strains on marriage that we have not faced in a very long time. Second, there are new demands on marriage. In the past, think about this. Scholars talk about this. The past, marriage was about economic goals. You had children to work the farm etc. We've moved from marriage being the foundational unit of economic production now to economic consumption. Think about the economic production to economic consumption. It's always been about companionship, but those other things have reversed, and so it's caused great strain on marriages. One of the greatest, if not the greatest reason for divorce is this, unfulfilled expectations. We believe that some person out there is going to be Jesus, basically, and is going to fulfill every single need, and then you marry them, and one week in you go, oh my goodness, hashtag, you're not Jesus. That's correct. <laughs> Never was. As one person said so brilliantly in one study we do here, you don't get married to get happy, you get married to get holy. Hello. See, expectations bring death in marriage all the time. And then there's sexual heat. We live in a culture that lifts up young and firm and sexual, which continually attacks any marriage. We are called regularly to embrace the invented, the airbrushed, the fantasy, which always on the surface looks better than what you have back home. All of it pushes us away from our spouse. Why? Because here's the reality. We all get older, but the magazine and pornography doesn't. You keep walking into chapters, and the magazines never change the age. But we bald, and we have other experiences. And so the reality is, since our culture has said, Oh, hail youth, the ultimate God, we continually are wondering if there is something better over there. We can have any type of sex we want on the internet of any form, It has never existed in history like it does now. 
Also, our culture has moved away from lifelong relationships and commitments to short, mobile, immediate life. The only contracts we believe in now are phone contracts, Costco, and the gym. And we don't even go to the gym, though we have a contract. <laughs> like it's gone. There are also two other major realities. The role, the role models are gone. Divorce breeds divorce. Fewer people have long-term marriages and families, let alone famous people, which informs culture, so there's no one actually to look up to very much anymore. And lastly, very significantly, is a change with women. This last one is not bad. It's good, but it is a huge factor. See, for hundreds, thousands of years, divorce was a man thing. And suddenly, women now in our culture are empowered, educated, financially viable. And so if they are in an abusive situation, they can leave. If they are bored like a guy can be, they also can leave. And so all these factors together are now creating the tsunami of divorce in our culture. And it's never been paralleled in written or oral history ever like this. And then we get to church, where many of us have ex experienced two extremes. Uh, for many, divorce is taboo, and if you've been divorced, you've been ostracized, or you feel like a second-class citizen, or maybe in one church someone said, I'm just sorry, you're not a Christian at all. And then there's the other extreme, which, by the way, I think is the danger in this church, where divorce is treated casually, not by the leadership, but among us. It's sort of de facto, oh, I got divorced, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. And then when someone says, you know, we need to talk about that, you throw out, you take the Lord's name in vain, and you say, don't judge, or you too will be judged. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's just remember the context of that verse means that if you and the person are talking, you'll both be judged by God's standard. What you're really saying is, I won't judge you if you won't judge me. Let's just live and let live. The first is truth without grace. The other is grace without truth. And oh, here's the uh, moment. They're both wrong. So let's find out what Jesus really says about divorce and remarriage. And as I preach this this morning, let this be found in our hearts. Above all else, God, I do want your kingdom to come. God, you can do anything you must in me today for your glory, my freedom, so the world can see Jesus clearly. The foundational verse about divorce in the Bible isn't found in Jesus. It's found in the Old Testament in Malachi. Here's what God himself says, the uncreated one. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Well, that gets as plain and in your face as it can, right? God hates divorce. God, who is the uncreated one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he hates divorce. He doesn't hate the people who have been divorced, but man, he has an issue with divorce. Now, this is not just some pithy moral statement. Do you notice the emotion behind God? God has been through a divorce with his own people. I think uh, one wrote this best when he said these words, divorce in the Bible is permitted only because of people's sin. Since divorce is only a concession of people's sin, and it's not part of God's original plan for marriage, all Christians should hate divorce as God does and only, only, only pursue it if there is no other recourse. With God's help, a marriage can actually survive the worst of sins. Jesus, fully informed by the Old Testament and lifting it up, talks a lot about this. He speaks about it in Mark 10. Luke 16, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and later in Matthew 19. Can I ask everyone to turn to Matthew 19? Here's why. 
Because in Matthew 19, Jesus takes what he started in the Sermon on the Mount and he expands on it there. And then we'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount at the end. It says in Matthew 19, 1, these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now Jesus comes to the other side of the Jordan and he does what he always does. He teaches and he heals. Both of them are demonstrating that the kingdom of God is now present. Word and deed are overcoming darkness. Yet, we would miss this if you don't read the whole book of Matthew. This ministry territory is very significant to the conversation about divorce. You see, well, I don't understand. Here it is. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, this is where he did most of his ministry. And John the Baptist got murdered because he spoke out against divorce in this region. Let me just read Matthew 14, just for some context. Now Herod, who had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So now Jesus comes to the same territory, and he's going to deal with the same issue that got his cousin murdered. So imagine it with me. He walks up over the hill. And there's lots of crowds and a group of religious leaders want to trap Jesus again. And as they see him approach, they they say to each other, well, how are we going to get rid of him? How can we do it? And one looked up, I'm sure, smiling and saying, well, let's use the issue of divorce. Let's see where he goes with this because maybe like his cousin, he can mess up and we can get him out too. Jesus, of course, being God, knows their thoughts, sees the trap, but I'm sure because I know Jesus so well and you do too, he would review all the pain through the tragedy called divorce, and be so hurt that these leaders don't care. Some Pharisees came to him and test him, verse 3, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to be divorced from his wife for any and any, sorry, any and every reason? Notice that phrase, for any and every reason. So can I get rid of my wife because she didn't do butter chicken right this week? Can I get rid of my wife because she didn't do the bed this week? Can I get rid of my wife because I found someone younger and sexier? What can I do? See, at this time in history, there were two religious views among the Jews. One said you could only divorce your wife because of sexual immorality. The other view under Hillel said you could divorce your wife for anything. And he actually quotes, if your wife messes up a meal, you have the right to divorce her. And so they're trying to find out where Jesus is landing between these two camps. So they wonder what the wandering prophet is about to do. Well, I love what Jesus does. He does exactly what, with these leaders, what he did with the devil in the wilderness. He speaks back to them with the Bible, with the word of God. The word of God that transcends culture, ideas, philosophies, and opinions. He looks at them knowing they don't even really care about the issue. They don't care about the sin, the pain. They don't care about the deep questions that come from divorce. They don't care about the broken people in the wake of lost dreams and hopes. They just want to fight, catch this, about what is allowable. And Jesus is going to show them what is desirable. Verse 4. Haven't you read? That's always dangerous when Jesus says that. Haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will be one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus goes behind the trap and behind the debate of the day and he goes directly back to one place, 
God's truth. He trumps Scripture with Scripture. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Now, everyone just take a look at me for a moment. This is really important. This is what the world looked like before the devil was involved, before sin was involved, before death was involved. This is God's plan, period. This is what it's supposed to be like. This is the summary of God the Father's heart. This is the way things were before the fall. Anything that deviates from this is directly or indirectly a result of the fall. Humans are created in male and female. They are meant for each other. Marriage is a permanent bond only between a man and a woman. And that new union is consecrated by intercourse called sex. Now, God hates divorce because it tears apart and ultimately severs what should be a permanent union. He reminds these leaders in this moment, the two will become one flesh. They will no longer be two, but one. Now, sex for Christians is not just getting it on, though that's fun. And it's not just, listen, every, let me say this again. Every Christian marriage over time should work very hard on their sex life. Good marriages have good sex lives. And Jesus isn't discounting that. But it's more than this. And let me get passionate about this. Jesus says, don't you know that the creator said the two will become one? I've preached this before, but I need to do it again. The God we worship as Christians is monotheism mutated. We are Trinitarians in this church. Yes or no? Yes. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one God forever praised found in three persons. Three persons sharing one essence. We do not believe in three gods. We have one God. And it's just complicated. Now here's the point. When a husband and wife only have sex, mutual sex, in the bedroom or wherever, in marriage... It is the closest thing we have to the image of God himself. Two people sharing one essence. When you deviate from this sexually, you violate the DNA of God. You cannot separate the modern conversation about sexuality from the very plan and DNA of God himself. That is why sexuality must be defined pre-fall, not post-fall. So we actually, when a husband and wife come together and have consenting sex to each other, and it's a beautiful thing, it reflects God himself. And Jesus says, boys, you know this off by heart, right? God's the one who brings us together. It's our sinful state that does the separating. To see divorce, catch this, as people, we begin to undo the work of God. And that puts this whole issue into a radical new perspective. This is Jesus' point to these leaders. Before there were concessions, there was a standard. And the standard is beautiful. Well, they're not done yet. They throw this back in his face. Verse 7. Well, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, they're quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. 
That's where the two camps come from. What does indecent mean? You didn't make my pad thai right or you had an affair. Which is it? Now we need to understand why Moses wrote this. There's three reasons why Moses allowed this. Here they are. The first thing was he was trying to keep marriages from indecent things. The second thing was, and this is unbelievably progressive for Moses, he wanted to guard women. You're like, I don't believe it. No, really. Because Moses said, unless women actually have a certificate of divorce, they will be in trouble. Because in that culture, if you were a sex trade worker or an adulteress, you could be stoned. But if you actually had a legitimate certificate of divorce, you could say, I'm not that, I am this. And you'd be protected by the community. It also made the man stand up and say, I do have a real issue. Now, here's what we're going to find out. It was about sexual immorality, not about patai. But there's a deeper thing going on even in this. And we need to all catch this together. The Pharisees said this was a command. Everyone catch this. They were saying this was a command by Moses. This is like the ultimate power play in Jesus' face. Like, well, Moses said this, so sit down. And Jesus says, you've missed all of this. This isn't a command of Moses. This is a concession. Moses allowed it because we have brokenness. They took it as a positive thing, and Jesus says it's a concession of sin. Verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Ladies, notice that. Boys, it's your problem. Oh, I just want to say that right there. Your hearts were hard, but it was not this way. What? Say it together. From? Okay, this is critical. Jesus keeps saying that divorce, remarriage, and sexuality always always have to be agreed upon from this phrase, from the beginning. Before anything else entered the world, this is not a secondary issue. This is primary to the gospel. So anytime a marriage goes south, it's a sign of sin. Something with someone has gone terribly wrong. Divorce is not a neutral option. It was done because there was hardness of heart or someone was not loving or patient or unforgiving or someone was other, not other-centered or both. Jesus hits the real reason. It's hardness of heart. And he says, if you go back to the beginning, this behind Moses, this is God's plan. And then, of course, if he was sitting here today, he'd remind us, and oh, by the way, I'm God in flesh. I wrote this, right? Verse 9, I tell you, and he repeats the Sermon on the Mount right here, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, If you think so far it's been intense, it's about to get more intense. Now, I just want to say this. All I'm going to do in this moment is I'm just going to read you the definition from the dictionary. Can we all agree with that? I'm just reading a definition from the dictionary. Jesus says, you can divorce a spouse for marital what? Say it loud. That was not loud. Marital what? Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. So we need to ask ourselves the question, well, if that's, if that's the allowed issue, what does that mean? Well, that word unfaithfulness in Greek is the word porneia. And the word porneia, can anyone guess what word we get from that today? Pornography. So you are allowed to divorce a marriage because of marital porneia. Now, porneia has three definitions in the Bible. All three of them are at play at this moment, sexual definitions. The first one is adultery. If you go and have sex with someone who's not your spouse, porneia. 
The second one, which is Jewish-specific, is this. In that culture, when you got engaged, you were technically married. And if you found out your spouse was not a virgin, you could divorce them. Anyone remember any story? Oh, right, Christmas, right? Where Mary comes to Joseph and says, hey, surprise, virgin birth. He's like, not so much, and, right? And there's this conversation, and he says, and he chose to try to divorce her quietly. That's pornea, because you said something and it wasn't true. But the third definition is actually the strongest one and the most important one. Pornea in Greek is a word used by Paul and Jesus and others. And here, this is just what it reads like in the dictionary. Any sexual act outside of a heterosexual marriage context. That's what it means. And he says, implying, of course, that those things are not God's will. That's what the word means. And the word in the New Testament has its roots in Leviticus. It has the exact same uh, connections. And it comes from Leviticus 18. Just let me read it to you this morning. It says, Don't have sex with your close relatives, especially your own mom. That would disgrace your dad. Don't disgrace him by having sex with any of his other wives. Good call. Don't have sex with your sister or stepsister, or anyone, or whether you grew up or not, together. Don't disgrace yourself by having sex with your granddaughter or half-sister or sister of your father or mother. Don't disgrace your uncle by having sex with his wife. Don't have sex with your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law. Don't have sex with your daughter or granddaughter of any woman that you've had had sex with earlier. You may be having sex with a relative that would make you unclean. As long as your wife is alive, don't cause trouble for her by taking on one of her sisters as a second wife. Uh, someone needs to have that conversation with people online these days. True. Do not have sex with another man's wife. That would make you unclean. It is detestable for a man to have sex with another man. Anyone who has sex with an animal is unclean. These verses are the foundation for porneia. All of these acts, according to Scripture, not politics, Scripture, are porneia. And if you do this, then your spouse has the right to have a conversation about divorce. If a partner does this, they sin against God, themselves, and their spouse. And Jesus says, you are allowed to divorce if your partner gets involved in these sexual actions. They break the bond, the trust, the agreement of two becoming one flesh. Like Moses, Jesus does allow for hardness of heart. But then don't miss something else. Everyone, I know you're starting to disconnect. Please hear this. But Jesus also allows for remarriage right here on the spot if this is the exception. One commits adultery, according to Jesus, if the remarriage occurs when pornea is not present. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount real quick. Matthew 5, 31. I'm going to reread it again. Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital pornea, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. See, the innocent party, or the more innocent party, because we know there's no such thing as a purely innocent party, has the right to remarry because the marriage is now broken, and when divorce happens, the marriage is dissolved in God's eyes. The purpose of biblical divorce, that is concession, is to make clear that the faithful partner is free to remarry. It follows the same teaching as death of a spouse. Now I want to remind us as I now begin to talk through the implications. This is why we're teaching this this morning. 
we as people have committed for God's kingdom to do all it must in us. And this is where the rubber really starts meeting the road. So let me talk through some stuff because I know there's so much swirling among us this morning. Here, here's, some, here's some questions. Number one, or some thoughts. Marriage is the highest form of human covenant. In other words, listen closely, we should fight for our marriages if we're married. We should see them through the eyes of heaven, not as modern legal contracts. We're not buying new cars or used cars. <laughs> They are the will of God, and they're supposed to be permanent, lifelong, and as Paul teaches us in Ephesians, they are actually the place where we learn how to worship. He actually compares Jesus' relationship to the church like marriage. We heard this verse last week. Let me read it to you again out of Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all, and marriage, the marriage bed be kept pure. God will judge the adulterer and the pornea. So the first thing we all need to agree on as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is a different conversation because we have willingly decided to follow Jesus and we believe Jesus is God and we believe he's good and we believe he's holy and we believe he's right. And so we've said we want to follow him because we think he does this better than us. So first of all, Jesus says marriage is beautiful in the highest form of human covenant and reflects the Trinity. Second of all, divorce is allowed for followers of Jesus in cases of sexual misconduct. Though all divorce is a result of sin, not all divorce is sinful. The goal was to give people freedom not to be bound to wrong situations long term. Here's another question. John, we're not divorced yet, but do I have to take my spouse back? Because I've just found out or have been in process, they've actually broken faith through sexual infidelity. So can I just run to the... Well, hold on. We're a movement that believes in reconciliation. And we believe that God is an unbelievable miracle worker. And Jesus in the next few weeks is going to say these words to all of us. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. As Jesus forgave us, we over time are called to forgive. So we should see if we're in this situation, if there is any possibility to reconcile with this person and see God work miracles. But at last, if there is no repentance and the marriage has died, God gives you permission. Still never stop asking God for a miracle. That's God's business. The power to forgive and love and talk can be given back to you. And oh, by the way, since we worship a God who's been resurrected from the dead, he can resurrect broken, dead marriages. It's possible. Well, here's another question so many of you are sitting with. Well, wonder if I got divorced or remarried and it was wrong. Like, John, you're sitting here and I'm listening to you. And if you're, if you're just saying this is true, then honestly... I'm wrong. So are you saying that for, for the rest of my life before God, I'm a forever adulterer? No. Here's the first thing I'd like to say to you. Have you ever admitted to God you were wrong? Have many of you just said, well, it was their fault and I was so hurt and you don't understand? Fine, God does. But have you ever just said, God, you know what? No, honestly, honestly, I was wrong. I, I shouldn't have got divorced, or it was partly my fault, or I shouldn't have got remarried. According to the biblical standard, it wasn't pornea. I'm sorry. Every time you admit something before God, what does he do? Throw a rock at you? No. 
He shows up and says, my son, my daughter, thank you for your honesty. I knew this anyways. Don't you think that's why I sent my son? I forgive you. You won't be a forever adulterer. He'll forgive you. And here's the thing. If you've been remarried, even if it was wrong, here's the good news. You together as spouses now dedicate that new marriage and say, your kingdom come this time. That's the heart of that difficult decision. You are not penned as a forever adulterer. Okay, well, wonder, reconciliation. The next question, if the divorce was wrong and I haven't been remarried, but actually my spouse is actually willing to maybe get back to me and I don't want to get back to them, what do I do? Well, Christians should always hesitate to enter into another marriage if there's a possibility of seeing the first one healed. With God, again, never discount resurrection from the dead. Don't rush to a new marriage. Get prayer. Go to a good Christian counseling center. Be involved in a good connect group. Read the scriptures and say to the Lord, what do you say? Here's the last one. What if the divorce took place before I was a Christian? I mean, I mean maybe, maybe I, I, was, I got divorced or remarried or we did or maybe we actually did wrong things to get. Like, what do we do? Here's the amazing thing. What is the scriptures there? Therefore, we are what? New creations. So everything that happened before we met Christ has been covered by Christ, 100%, 100%. A few other thoughts. Some of you are going, John, um, there are so many other situations. What about abuse? Uh, uh, what about uh, mental illness? Like, you're listen- it's great. They're right. In 2009, I preached three other sermons on this topic because Paul actually addresses this in another good way. God actually talks about his own divorce and remarriage to his own people. And then in 2009, myself and a former pastor that used to be here did a Q&A together on the stage of how to support people through divorce afterwards. And I would really encourage you, it's on all the cards today, it's all connected to your connect groups, to go back and listen to those two because they begin to address a whole other group of issues I can't address today. Okay. Here's what we're going to do before we respond. Can everyone just put their Bibles down for a moment, their phones? And you, an auditorium B, you wouldn't mind doing that wherever you are in a go train or a plane. Can everyone just go quiet for a moment? Like so much has been said this morning, right? Just, just go quiet for a second. Okay, um, you can close your eyes if you want to. Some of you won't want to, but it would probably be good. Jesus is here at this moment in this place. The same Jesus that taught out of Matthew 19 is actually here. And he's spoken through his word, but at this moment he wants to draw close, very close to some of you. Don't fight him. One group of people, as I was praying all this week, the image I had in my mind is of you standing before a door. And it was like you were just pounding the door in anger, saying to God, I will never agree with you. I will never forgive that person. You don't know what they did to me. Or other people saying, you're wrong on sexuality, Jesus. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I will never submit. And here's what I really believe Jesus wants to say to you. It's like Jesus suddenly shows up between you and the door and he says, aren't you tired of fighting me? I'm love. And it's like as you go to pound the door another time, it's almost like he grabs your wrist very gently 
and looks at you and says, I'm Lord. I'm Lord. I'm Lord. Stop fighting me. At this moment, some of you, maybe you want to do this, literally just put out your hands just quietly in front of you and literally give over the person that you just can't forgive and say to Jesus, I don't know what to do anymore and I'm so angry, I just have to surrender them to you. Others of you at this moment need to repent because you have believed and taught others that divorce, remarriage, or issues on sexuality are okay and they're not. And the Lord is saying to you in this moment, repent, you have not represented me. Trust me with yourself, he's saying to some of you. Trust me with the people in your life. Trust me. I'm good. There's another group of you, and it's like Jesus sits beside you, and he's putting his arm around you, like holding you tight. Maybe you'll feel him. And he said to you, you thought for so long that actually I was so angry with you because you got divorced, and actually... You had my blessing, though it was a concession. And he's literally saying to people across both rooms and online, peace. It's done. There's other people where he's hugging just as tight and saying, oh, I know what you did was wrong. It was really bad. I was there. But I'm saying to you this morning, no, it act like I have really forgiven you. There's another group of people here this morning where Jesus is like sitting, looking at you eye to eye. And he's saying, I know what you're planning. I know what you're doing. And I'm here to stop you this morning. You may not leave your spouse. You may not have that affair. I'm here as Lord. To all of us, this is what Jesus says this morning. And this is the most beautiful thing. And this is as the bands come up to lead us now in response and communion. I want the whole church to hear this. So everyone can just open your eyes if you have the ability to do that right now. And here it is. Friends, isn't our God the most faithful partner? as we spend our day wrestling through the terrible brokenness of our world and of our families and all the crap we've done, we get to end this service, some of us repenting for wrong theology and wrong teaching, some of us being reconciled, some of us being confronted, but we all get to remember that Jesus is the best spouse, the most faithful spouse who never leaves us or forsakes us and reminds us that covenant ultimately stems from his love for us. This is the moment where we as Christians come, and it says in the Bible that if you're a Christian, you're welcome to this table, and Jesus took bread and ripped it and said, you know, my body's going to be broken. I'm going to cover all sin. Took a cup of wine during that Passover thing and said, my blood's going to, new covenant. Do this when you gather in remembrance of me. Here we remember the faithfulness of God. Here we remember the resurrection of the dead. Here we remember the forgiveness of sins. Here we remember, and this is so critical, there is a day coming, no more unfaithfulness, no more pain, 
no more mistakes. And this is what we remember here. Scriptures are clear about three things. If you're a Christian and you need to confess something, do it before you come to the tables. It's if you're a Christian and you're running from God and you refuse to submit to him, it says don't take this because you made mockery of the one, what, you know, what's symbolized here. But for all Christians that are just willing, come and participate. And then for, for you who are not Christians yet, don't take this yet because you have not met the one that we follow. And yet again, like I always say, meet, if you want to meet him, trust me, he'll be here. And you can meet him here. Would you stand and let me pray for our community this morning. Would you stand in auditorium B online and let's respond this way. Lord, would you bless these elements? Would you now meet us as we come forward? Lord, would some of us truly just repent of our sin, our thinking and our actions? Would all of us know the faithfulness of Christ? And Lord, we pray uh, that you'd continue to meet us and guide us as we struggle through your kingdom getting too close, and yet it's what we need. We ask this in the name of the Holy Father and the Holy Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Don't forget as we come forward, generously give to the care fund as we deal with the widows and orphans among us. Come, experience forgiveness, hope, resurrection, truth, repentance, and life.